We are uh, starting a new series starting today in, in the book of Revelation, a book that I think many people find very difficult to understand and struggle with, yet it's fascinating because it's also the book that uh, the church throughout history, especially the church that has struggled and has been under persecution, has found the book of Revelation to be maybe the most comforting book. And so I think it's going to be, uh, I hope and pray, that this series is one that is encouraging and strengthening to you. Uh, And uh, I'm going to start gradually. We're actually going to start with Revelation chapter 2 and uh, some of the letters to the churches as we move in gradually and we'll be looking at Ephesians because this first letter to the churches in the book of Revelation is to the church in Ephesus. And you see a lot of echoes and the message, the continuance of the message. So uh, our scripture was going to be starting in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And then we're going to jump over to Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7. So uh, if, you can, if you can stand with me, if you are able, uh, for the reading of God's word. First Ephesians 4 and then Revelation 2. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That's why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And now Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false, and you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. 
If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, as we enter this time of focusing on your word, we pray that you will be here present with us in power, that your work will do its word in our hearts and in our minds. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I uh, recently heard the story of a man who, uh, from New York who bought a ranch out west uh, with the intention of raising cattle. When their friends visited and asked about the ranch's name, the would-be rancher replied, well, I, I wanted to name it the Bar J. My wife favored Susie Q, and one of our sons wanted the Flying W, and the other liked the Lazy Y. So because, you know, we're a unified family working together, we called it the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. Well, the man uh, seemed a little puzzled as he looked around and he said, well, where are all your cattle? Well, uh, unfortunately, none of them survived the branding. (laughs) Unity is vital. It's vital to a family and a church. But what is, what is healthy unity? That's, uh, I think, the question we need to ask ourselves as we take a look at this short letter in Revelation and at what Paul has to say to the church in Ephesus. This morning we're, again, as I said, starting this new series. And I, the reason I'm doing this series in Revelation is because I think it's vital for us to understand as Christians in our modern world. You know, it was given to churches in a culture very much like ours. Also, I I think it's vitally important for us to understand this book as we seek the Holy Spirit's renewal and revitalization in our midst because it's written to churches that often dealt with similar issues that uh, I think we are dealing with today. You know, we live in dangerous times for Christians. I probably don't need to tell you that. The world is changing around us very quickly, but I don't think that's really the most serious problem. The most serious problem is the changes that are going on among professing Christians. For instance, it's uh, not uncommon for me to be speaking to someone who will tell me that they love and worship God, but they don't want nothing to do with organized religion or the church. They say they love Jesus but they don't love the church. They have personal worship and prayer times and personal Bible studies, but don't want anything to do with meeting with other Christians in a church setting. They can't find the right kind of church that suits them. And when they do find a church that they seem to be able to get behind, they run into personality issues and they run into people that are just not very lovable, like me. Too many rough edges. So for them, the, the easiest thing to do is simply stop going to church altogether 
only attend a few times a year and maybe watch church on television. Or they'll choose to attend very large and personal churches where they never have to talk to anybody, never have to build any relationships of substance. These are, uh, in fact, growing and dangerous trends with an American Christianity today. Uh, the trend is often referred to as Lone Ranger Christians. Or uh, let me uh, use a different illustration, Richard Lovelace's metaphor, we're like deep sea divers. We can look around and see each other, but we each have a hose connected to an air supply and we really don't need each other. We see ourselves as self-contained systems, cut off from those around us. We think Christianity is just God and me. We don't need others to help us in our relationship with God, and we don't even think uh, about our part in helping others in their relationship with God and God's work in the world. Through the years, we've all had Christian friends move away. And while it was sad to see them go, our friendship stayed intact. Or maybe it wasn't as close as before because of distance, but it was still good to see them every time we got a chance. But I suspect many of us have had Christian friends who didn't leave town, but they left us. Something happened that disappointed or hurt them, and in their anger they pulled away, and it seemed that nothing we did would really, could really reconcile. I just uh, recently spoke with a man who, who we just once again started building a relationship. He used to be a close friend. Some years ago, I confronted him on something going on in his life, and he broke off our relationship. When I saw him after several years, for the first time, he still acted as though the estrangement was fresh. And only, once, and only recently has he attempted to communicate with me in a more civil manner and, and rebuild that friendship. Not only have some of us had Christian friendships break apart, but we've all probably heard of or been part of churches that have broken apart over very little. They've broken apart due to an inability to deal properly and in unity with immorality, and sometimes it's unethical behavior. People who once were friends, people we worshipped with, studied the Bible with, ministered alongside of, ate with, and laughed with, now hardly seem to exist. Is this what Jesus had in mind when he prayed to the Father in John chapter 17, that his followers may be one as he and the Father are one? Quite obviously not. See, in uh, John's revelation is included this short letter to the church in Ephesians and also the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. There's a call for Christians to remember their first love and to unity. To a relationship with each other that is characterized by grace and love. I'm going to explain what I mean here by uh, this call to love and to unity in a moment. This isn't, by the way, a naive, idle wish, but it's a command from God. This isn't just a pleasant thought of, of, or wish, as in, wouldn't it be nice if we could just all get along with each other? You know, I uh, 
recently read a book by a supposed Christian author that could be summarized as a, as a naive idol wish, that we would just be more unified. The theme of the book is just that, an idol wish. But what we're dealing with here is a command from God. Now, according to the Bible, this issue of unity is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. And I don't think it's too strong to say, and by the way, this is point one on your outline for those of you who like to keep notes in the middle of your bulletin. Without unity, we will not become what God has called us to be here at Parkway Presbyterian Church. Look with me at, uh, I'm going to start in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to I'm going to start at the end of the passage, and I'm going to work my way backwards. 4.13 says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, this is what it means to be Christian. What it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Anything less than progress in that direction in our lives is a denial of what it means to be a Christian. Becoming like Jesus is what Christianity is about. If becoming more like Jesus is your heart's desire, and I think it really must be for all of us as Christians, weak at times to be sure, but your basic desire nonetheless, then Paul's instruction at the beginning of Ephesians 4 is very important to you and I to hear. Now, uh, Again, I'm going to ask you to follow along in this passage. We're going to be going backwards, and then we're going to head over to Revelation. See, God's desire is stated in verses 13 through 16, and it's this, that we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Or in verse 15, to grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. How does that happen? Well, it's explained in verses 7 to 12. To each one of us, by God's grace, have been given spiritual gifts gifts as Christ apportioned. And then in verse 11 to 12, it was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers. That's what it is literally in the Greek. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. See, Paul teaches us here and elsewhere that when Jesus went back to heaven, he sent his spirit to empower his people with spiritual abilities to reach others for Christ and to minister to one another. And this is point two on your outline. When uh, each Christian uses those spiritual gifts, all other Christians in the church grow. And when Christians don't use those abilities to serve each other, Everyone suffers. Again, this is very important for us. So I ask you, do you have gifts in music? Do you have gifts to work teaching children? Are you putting into practice the gifts and abilities that God has given you? Let's let's take a moment. I'm going to move very quickly now to verses 1 through 6 and which is really the primary point of this passage, and it's point three on your outline. If we don't live out or practice the unity that is already ours in Christ, 
then we won't minister to each other and we won't mature in our faith and become more like Christ. In verses 4 through 6, Paul states a reality. A reality that really needs to motivate us. He says, we are one. That we are in fact united to each other. Paul uh, cites the evidence that we Christians are in fact one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. You see a... See his emphasis here? See, Paul regularly uses the metaphor of a, of a body to describe the church. And because the church exists in Christ and Christ is its head, the church is uh, said to be his body. Christ is one. And he only has one body. And therefore his church is one. This is what theologians refer to as the church invisible and the church universal. Each congregation is one manifestation of that one church. So if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are in the body of Christ, the church. You may not particularly like every member of your family, but we are one family. And Paul says there is only one spirit So if you're a Christian, you've been brought into the body of Christ, the church, by the same Spirit, and the same Spirit lives in you as He does in me. There is only one hope. In other words, we share an amazing destiny. When Jesus comes again, we will be with Him. We will be included in the great transformation that God will finish at that time, which we'll be focusing on quite a bit later on here in the book of Revelation. It's the major theme of John, that we will be victors together in Christ. We will be with each other forever. Point four is that we share a common destiny, and our oneness is for eternity. So we also have just one Lord, and He is the same Lord for you as He is for me. We have only one faith. It's not about you know, our faith, my faith. It's the, it is uh, the faith that is in what it is we believe. And there's only one truth about who Jesus is, what He did, what He offers us by grace through faith. This faith is summarized very clearly, I think, and succinctly in the essentials of our denominations, the essentials of the EPC. And all who are trusting in Jesus' grace alone, by faith alone, are Christians and are one. Then he says we have only one baptism. Now this isn't about uh, sprinkling versus immersion or whether we're baptized forward or backward. Yeah, did you know that a whole denomination had split because uh, uh, they couldn't decide whether you you should baptize somebody forward or backward? That happens. But this isn't what that's about. It's uh, not about infant baptism versus adult baptism. And this, this is point five on your outline. The fact is that the Spirit of God baptizes or brings all of us into the family of God in the same way, by connecting us with Jesus. And we have only one God and Father. There aren't many gods, but only one God. 
So if you've been adopted into his family by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he is your father, and he is my father. So we are brothers and sisters in Jesus. We are connected. We are one family. As Christians, we are bound to each other with real cords that are stronger than any other reality. It must be stronger than biology and natural family. It must be stronger than race or ethnicity or tribe. Bishop uh, John Reed tells of driving a school bus in Australia, which he had to do for some time, which carried white and aborigine children. The black and white children were continually fighting until one day Reed stopped the bus and said to the white children, What color are you? When they said white, he said, no, you are green. Anyone who rides my bus is green. Now what color are you? They responded, green. He turned to the aborigine children and said, what color are you? They said, black. No, you are green. Anyone who rides my bus is green. Now what color are you? They responded, green. With that, he set off down the road again. He thought he'd accomplished his purpose when he overheard one boy announce, all right, light green on this side, dark green on that side. (laughs) You know, Paul says that our oneness in Christ is stronger than our skin color. It's stronger than the cultural differences between us. It's stronger than the age differences. It is stronger than our preference in music or styles of preaching, it must be. It must be. And we must have a settled assurance of this, or we will not experience the Spirit's revitalization in our midst. See, God is in the business of uniting. Of uniting in unity people from all cultures, all skin colors, in Christ Jesus. His kingdom is being built around this world from all different kinds of people. And the way that he does that is he gives us a new identity that is stronger than all other identities together. We are one in Christ. We have the same spirit, the same hope, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, and the same God and Father. We are one body, one church, and it's only in the context of our relationship with each other in the church that we grow to be more like Christ. Do you see that here? The issue of oneness and unity is really quite crucial. Now turn with me to the beginning of this passage, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of of peace. See, what we get here is commands. In fact, uh, the, the essential commands of this passage. Up until this point, Paul has been telling us what is true, how greatly loved we are, how God in Christ has made our relationship with him possible, how we have become God's new society of people, the church. Now he says, says since this is all true, you have an obligation. 
He commands us, as loved children of the Father, to obey. I urge you, he says, make every effort. These are commands. They're not optional. And what is it we're commanded to do? Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Act in a manner consistent with your high calling. See, the church, which includes us in this place, this time in history, we have been called to be the pattern of what God will eventually do in the entire universe. And we're going to see this theme played out throughout the book of Revelation. And it starts with our attitudes. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So point six on your outline is this. To be humble is to recognize the God-given worth of others. Considering the welfare of others is more important than our own. And to be gentle is to put our strength under control. It's to give up our personal rights for others. And to be patient is to believe God's timetable is good no matter how long it takes. And to bear with one another in love is to put up with each other while still loving them, forgiving them for their mistakes, to seek the best for others even if it means denying ourselves. See, all of this is really a heart issue. The peace, unity, and purity of the church begins by having the attitude be in us that was in Christ Jesus, who although he was God, didn't push his rights, but humbled himself even to death on a shameful cross. What a contrast that is to us so often as Western Christians. We, uh, we get easily irritated and offended by others. Then we begin reviewing past offenses and analyzing the present to find any shred of evidence to support our current position that so-and-so is just a jerk after all. We easily separate ourselves from each other, write each other off, or have nothing to do with each other. We church hop when things don't go just the way we hoped. This is the opposite of the virtues that God commands us. Humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, and loving. So point seven on your outline is this. Wounded pride and personal preferences are usually the reasons we separate and divide. Don't you realize who you are? You are the new community the new people of God. You are the model of what God is doing for all eternity. True unity is built on the foundation of the truth of what God has done in you, is doing in you, and is doing among you. And it's lived out in our attitudes toward each other. Humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerant love. Now let's, uh, let's go to John's revelation here. He really speaks of, to these same churches in Ephesus. He writes to them about a, 
about a generation later, approximately 30 years later than Paul does. See, they'd, uh, they'd made progress since Paul's letter to them. They had weeded out many of the false teachers that Paul addresses. John commends them for this. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Unfortunately, all that has come at a high cost. They either had not made progress at unity or their initial unity had dissolved. The church in Ephesus overcoming and conquering, as John puts it, requires more vigilance, more than just vigilance of theological watchmen. It requires the internal unity of love. And the reward of that kind of overcoming, as he puts it, is eating from the tree of life. In other words, this is a serious topic a topic of eternal consequences. It has to do with the very salvation of the church in Ephesus. And it's the same thing for us here at Parkway and and every congregation. And this is point eight on your outline. Peace, unity, and purity are not just nice ideas or a nice ideal. They are essential to the health and vitality of a congregation. See, the church, like many churches, has been and continues to be attacked on this issue. And how will we respond? How will we respond to the reality that we have experienced these kinds of divisions in our midst? Will we harden our hearts and refuse to seek peace, unity, and purity? Or will we seek unity as individuals? Will we be humble, kind, and patient with one another? See, John's message really is quite simple in this short little letter. His message is that it's time to embrace, time to humbly repent and forgive, time to remember your first love. The most common interpretation of this has been a reference to their love for Jesus, their love for God. But most evangelical scholars agree that the reference here in in the context historically and literarily, is their love for one another and their unity as the body of Christ. And even if you were to disagree with me and think, no, that this first love has more to do with the love of God, ultimately, biblically, you can't separate the two. Love for Jesus and love for others go hand in hand. So my dear friends, my dear brothers and sisters, it's time to embrace in unity. It's time to embrace in love and truth as we move forward in the vision and mission that God has given us here. It's time for each of us to love each other more deeply, to seek out those in our midst who are often left out, who are lonely, who are often isolated, and to embrace, to love one another deeply. For they will truly know we are Christians by our love. Love one another. How can you do that when you don't even know people's names? How can you do that when you're holding on to a grudge? How can you do that when you're avoiding people? 
It's time to move out in unity of purpose and unity of love as we reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we model the transformative work of God in our midst. And as we do that, we must do it living out that gospel. Living out that gospel in unity toward each other. So I'm asking you to prayerfully join with me in committing to pursuing the vision and mission that God has given us and pursuing that in love and in unity together. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, When we read your words, so oftentimes it, it penetrates, it, it cuts. We realize how far short we, we fall as individuals, as a community, in living out the calling that you have given us. And so, Lord, as we continue to seek your empowerment, to seek your renewal, your revitalization in our midst, to seek your work of, of rebuilding and strengthening, we ask you, Lord, to, to guide us into this kind of unity that we need as we serve one another, as we serve this community together in unity and in love. Lord, thank you for your presence, your empowering presence. We can't do this, not one iota of it, without you. We have baptized, been baptized into one spirit. And so, Lord, we, we ask for your Holy Spirit's empowerment now as we seek to be obedient to your calling upon us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.